Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do on these SALT Talks, like we try to do at our SALT conferences, which we're going to hopefully resume the second half of 2021, is provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And in our view, there are few bigger ideas out there today than the digital assets and Bitcoin space. So we're thrilled today to welcome Lynn Alden, one of the leading commentators and experts on the digital assets and Bitcoin space to Salt Talks. Uh, Lynn Alden's background lies at the intersection of engineering and finance. She has a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and a master's degree in engineering management with the focus on engineering economics and financial modeling. She oversees the finances and the day-to-day operations of an engineering facility. Lynn has been performing investment research for over 15 years in various public and private capacities. Her work has been editorially featured or cited on Business Insider, Market Watch, Times Money Magazine, The Daily Telegraph, The Philadelphia Inquirer, The Street, CNBC, US News and World Report, Kiplinger, and The Huffington Post. In addition, she's appeared on Kitco, Real Vision, The Investor's Podcast Network, The Rebel Capitalist Show, Macro Voices, The Macro Huddle, What Bitcoin Did, and many other podcasts. And we're now proud to say today she has appeared on SALT. So hopefully that will make it in her bio as well. She's also a regular contributor to Seeking Alpha, Fed Week, and Elliott Wave Trader. Hosting today's talk is Brett Messing, the President and Chief Operating Officer of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm that uh, recently, at the beginning of this year, launched a Bitcoin fund, and Skybridge also made a substantial investment into Bitcoin via our uh, flagship funds. So with that, uh, no further ado, I'll turn it over to Brett to conduct the interview. Well, um, Lynn, welcome. Glad you could join us. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me. As, as I told you before, we went on the air. I'm a Lynn Alden fan, and you, you actually helped uh, me and by extension us on, on our journey to investing in Bitcoin in our fund. And we presently have, I think, about $400 million invested in Bitcoin. So, you know, we're not messing around. We even have had to say Bitcoin. Yeah, congratul- um, congratulations on your fund, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're super excited about it. So, to start off, can you just talk about your journey to? going from Bitcoin is sort of interesting to this is sort of a legitimate investable asset. And, and then next, I'd want to talk about your sort of bullish take on it right now, which of course we share. But I'd like to understand that preliminary step. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I first heard of Bitcoin back in 2010, 2011, uh, but I, you know, I thought it was neat. I, I understood the basics of the technology, but I didn't really have a way to price it or a way to think that it would get very big. Uh, and so I didn't really go into that space. I didn't really kind of you know keep uh, too close tabs on it. Uh, but then, of course, when we had that giant run up in 2017, I started to get more and more emails from my investment clients asking me what my thoughts are on it. Do I think it's a good opportunity? Uh, and of course, you know, you know, there's nothing like price to change public sentiment on it. And so, for example, whatever is doing well at a time, I tend to get emails from clients about that particular thing. So we had the, you know, we had the pot stock bubble, we had the gold stock, you know, spike, we had Bitcoin go up into all these different years kind of have a different theme. Right now, a lot of interest in electrical vehicle stocks, for example. Uh, but during that 2017 run up, I said, okay, I need to do a deeper dive on this. I need to have kind of a price model here. I need to understand some of the, the risks and opportunities. And so I did a, a long form kind of research piece on it. And so my conclusion at the time 
was that it is really interesting. Uh, it is really useful technology, uh, and that I'm not exactly bearish on it, but that I can't uh, bring myself to be bullish on it either. Uh, and so I kind of had that neutral to slightly bearish outlook on, and I took no position. Uh, and so the main, I had a couple kind of key concerns at the time. One was that sure that Bitcoin is scarce, uh, but then now that you know Satoshi Nakamoto, you know, published how to do it, all these other cryptocurrencies can come in its wake. And so my concern was that potentially that the, the market would become very diluted. So, for example, even if a trillion dollars of capital pours in, what if it just goes into all these different altcoins and there's no kind of one dominant uh, you know, network effect? Uh, the second concern I had was that you know, Bitcoin had recently split, uh, you know, had the Bitcoin Cash hard fork uh, because there was a difference of opinion among the developer community about whether to maximize uh, you know, uh, the ease of running a full node versus uh, try to increase transaction throughput on the base layer. So you had that kind of disagreement, and they went in two different directions. Uh, and so my con my concern at the time was, okay, we just had a massive price run up. I see some of these dilution risks. Uh, and so I, I sat out. That was around 7,000 a coin. And then, of course, we had the blow off top a couple months later. Then we had the big, you know, the massive correction. We had this multi-year consolidation. Uh, and so it did actually underperform many other assets for a while. Uh, but then I started to pay attention to it again uh, in late 2019 because by then, a lot of my initial concerns were addressed. So Bitcoin won out over its hard fork. Uh, in you know, in terms of hash rate and price, so it, it retained a very dominant market share. Some of those, you know, that one of their hard forks, uh, you know, had another hard fork into Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, and those are you know less than one to two percent of Bitcoin's market capitalization and hash rate. And so they they never really kind of became uh, you know sizable competitors uh, from a store of value perspective. We call them shit coins. We're fine with that. We we you know we're, we're not on the broadcast networks here. <laughs> yeah, and so you know because they never took off, they never you know, they never. Uh, took Bitcoin's market share. Uh, Bitcoin regained some degree of Bitcoin dominance, meaning a percentage of market cap of the total you know, digital asset space. Uh, and so I started paying attention to it. And then, of course, when we had in early 2020, when we had that big liquidation event in March, uh, where you know every pretty much every asset class across the board was going down in price rapidly because we had you know uh, liquidity issues in the global banking system. Uh, and so I saw that Bitcoin behaved a lot like gold and silver did. Uh, and so when it was started to come back up in April, uh, I bought into Bitcoin. Uh, and it, ironically, it was the, the, roughly the same price. It was just under 7000 7, uh, you know, that I analyzed it back in 2017. However, I viewed it as significantly de-risked, right? So they, it basically en enforced its scarcity by making sure that some of these hard forks couldn't take market share from it. Uh, and it basically it retained a lot of its key principles. And so uh, and then when you look forward about where it is in its four-year halving cycle, uh, it's in a much more favorable place, uh, you know, relative to the cycle that it goes through. And so I had a, you know, a high conviction on that, that it, you know, that I, would, I wasn't sure it would take off, but I, I figured that the, the risk to reward ratio was some of the best I've seen in any asset class. So I had to have a position. Like, you just take a moment and explain the having. Um, I, I think for some of our audience, that would be helpful. Absolutely. So, you know, the way Bitcoin is programmed, uh, at roughly every 10 minutes, there's a new block added to the blockchain. Uh, and it does it does an automatic network difficulty adjustment to ensure that that rate stays at about every ten minutes. Uh, and after uh, you know, I believe it's two hundred and ten thousand blocks, which is roughly four years. Uh, there's uh, you know a, a having. So basically, every time there's a new block generated, a certain number of you know the the one the miner that that creates that block gets to create a number of bitcoins for themselves. And so in the first four years, that was fifty bitcoin generated per block. Uh, and then after four years, the the algorithm is pre-programmed uh, to cut that in half, and so that went down to 25 uh, new bitcoins per block. 
and then four years later is 12 and a half bitcoins per block. And so every four years, the, the new supply of Bitcoin generated per unit of time uh, gets cut in half. And so the pattern we tend to see is that, you know, if you look at, you know, what Bitcoin did in the launch cycle for the first year or so, it didn't even have a price history. Uh, and then it went up pretty dramatically. Uh, and then it had this blow off top and then it reaches consolidation. And you finally had this kind of balance between supply and demand. And right when it got that balance, we had a supply shock, right? So the amount of supply got cut in half. Demand was still pretty persistent. Uh, and that drove the price up again. Then, of course, you get momentum traders jump on board. You bring it up to a new high. You have another blow off top and a crash and a correction. And then it finds another equilibrium base at a higher price level. And right when it does that, there's another halving. And so the supply gets cut in half again, and it has another four-year run. And so that's the cycle we've seen play out about three times. Okay, that's great. Um, so you, you had a terrific piece this summer, which I've sent to a lot of people, sort of the three reasons that you're bullish on Bitcoin. And you mentioned the halving cycle, sort of the network effect, which I think you know everyone's sort of familiar with, right? That's all the value that's been created in Google Information Network, right? Amazon, a retail network, has come from just this collection of people all on, this, on the same system. Um, and then the third, obviously, is the macro environment. You're an economist. Can, can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So I mean. It- Basically, this you know, 2020 was the perfect storm for Bitcoin because in addition to being in a good place in its own halving cycle and in addition to having won over some of those you know, forked competitors, uh, the macro environment couldn't be more attractive. The narrative uh, for why you'd want to buy Bitcoin uh, is some of the best around. And so, for example, we saw broad money supply in the United States increase by about 25% year over year uh, over the past 12 months. And that's, of course, because we had very large fiscal fiscal deficits. Uh, and then we had uh, you know, a, a significant degree of monetization where the central bank was basically forced to buy a significant percentage of the treasury's issue to do all this uh, fiscal deficits. And so we see that in countries around the world to different degrees. Uh, so it's in, in many countries, you see money supply growth growing over 10% year over year. And the United States was actually one of the largest with over 25% uh, year over year money supply increase. And so when you have that kind of massive increase in money supply, if it doesn't show up in, say, price inflation, uh, it can show up, you know, more easily in asset price inflation. And so you've seen a reflation in, you know, anything that's kind of scarce. So real estate, commodities, uh, you know, most equities, things like that. That's that's terrific. When Bill Miller was, I want to talk a little about the value, how to value Bitcoin. So Bill Miller was on CNBC last week, and he said that, you know, as Bitcoin goes up in value, it actually becomes more valuable, right, and less risky. You know, as it as it sucks more money into it, and so I'm going to put a pin on that for a second. There are two sort of other ways that I think are common, right, to value Bitcoin. One is Metcalf's law, which is right by looking at the number of users on the network, and and I've seen some research where if you track the price against the number of people that are believed to own Bitcoin, it tracks at about a 96% correlation. And then the third methodology, right, is the stock to flow model. Right, which looks at the amount of outstanding Bitcoin as the numerator and the amount that's being mined as the denominator. And as you discussed earlier with the halving cycle, you know, as, as that fraction becomes more favorable, it, it drives the price. I guess I, I'd like your thoughts on, on just generally how you value Bitcoin, probably starting first with, with uh, Bill Miller's comment and then how these sort of three, in your mind, work together or don't. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I, 
basically what Bill Miller points out is correct. And so, you know, as Bitcoin's price goes up, what we generally see is that the hash rate goes up. And so that's the amount of computing power that goes into verifying the network. Uh, and so if you look at some of the, the altcoins, uh, they have very low hash rate, meaning that if you were to try a 51% attack on the network, meaning that if you, if you were to somehow get enough uh, mining capacity or processing power uh, to be able to be, you know, be, be a majority miner on that network, then you, could, you can change the blockchain in your favor. You can basically cheat the system and give yourself more coins. You basically can break the network. Uh, and so with some of those uh, you know, uh, very uh, cheap coins, low market capitalization, uh, low hash rate, uh, it's not that expensive to either, either you know, you know, buy hardware or rent computing power, whatever you know, their, their algorithm needs, uh, and go ahead and attack that network and, and basically profit from that. Uh, Bitcoin is, is unique in the sense that it has by far the most hash rate of any uh, you know, digital asset out there uh, because it was the first. It's, it's been this you know, 12-year history of ever-increasing hash rate. Uh, and so as the price goes up, it enables uh, you know, more and more uh, uh, mining capacity to come online and verify the network because you know, uh, you know, miners get their you – know, most of their money comes from you know, mining Bitcoin, generating blocks. They also generate fees uh, you know, for verifying transactions. And so the higher overall market capitalization of the system – uh, the more fees go into mining and the more expensive it would, it would be to try to do a 51% attack. And so basically, as it gets more expensive, it also gets more secure in that sense. Uh, and then when you look at other uh, you know, ways of, of, of modeling it, I do think Metcalf's law is a key way to look at it. Uh, and so you know, you, you've seen uh, Bitcoin, and, and then we've also seen Ethereum, for example, play along those kind of network effects, whereas more and more people jump on, you generally have uh, you know, the, the price go up. Uh, but of course, you know, as you have these four-year halving cycles, you can undershoot or overshoot that trend line. Uh, and so, for example, if you look at the stock-to-flow ratio, which is a supply-only model, it doesn't take into account demand. Uh, you generally see that you know they have pretty ste steady levels of where they expect the price to be at any given time, based on you know that four-year halving cycle we talked about. Uh, but you generally see that you know during during kind of the end of that bull run, you'll you'll massively overshoot the model and then you'll you'll fall back below the model and then you'll kind of come to an equilibrium. And that's because demand is a variable that can fluctuate over time. And so when you bring in kind of another class of investors, uh, that can push it you know briefly way above the model uh, and, until kind of momentum fades and it dies back down. And then usually it's the next halving cycle that kind of triggers another bull run. Um I don't want to touch on net, uh, the network effect for a second because again I I think people make this this analogy, which it has worked, right, between or met between social networks and Bitcoin as a monetary network. But it seems to me that on Facebook book, almost everyone is sort of created equal. In the context of a monetary network, I don't think that's the case, right? So Michael Saylor is worth way more, right, than my daughter who joined the network, right? But for the purpose of sort of calculating the way the model works, it doesn't account for the fact that you have sort of players, right, that are, have vastly different value, right, to the overall network. How would you think about that? Is that just Metcalf's Law Plus, or, or does that make Metcalf's Law less relevant here? Yeah, so each, each type of network has different characteristics. And so, for example, if you look at a phone system, every, every node on the phone system is pretty much equal. Whereas if you look at something like eBay, you have, you have two different types of nodes. You have buyers and sellers, and you need to attract a bunch of both in order to make it work. And so you don't have this kind of equal distribution. You have, you have more, more buyers than sellers. Uh, with Bitcoin, there's a couple of different ways to measure the, the network. And so one is just hash rate, for example. This is the sheer amount of hash rate and security that the system has. Uh, another way to look at it is the number of nodes, which are separate from miners. Uh, and so 
you know, whereas mining is a very expensive capital intensive operation, uh, a full node can be run by anybody with a basic laptop. And so, uh, you know, Bitcoin has far more full nodes verifying the network uh, from, from, you know, enthusiasts and, 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 and all sorts of people around the world. Uh, and is far more, you know, globally distributed, whereas mining tends to be kind of concentrated in China. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Bitcoin has more disverification in the network. And then, of course, because it's the leading brand uh, and it has the most security and it has, you know, a, a ton of liquidity, uh, that's the one that people go to if they want to get into the space. And so, for example, you know, Skybridge didn't buy, you know, into Litecoin. As far as I know, it's, it's Bitcoin. You basically buy the one, the blue chip of the space. And so as it kind of, you know, has that larger and larger network effect, that's the one that people go into when they want that security. They want the one that they know is going to have, uh, you know, really useful value. And it pretty much can be, you know, in some ways accepted around the world. And we see, and in addition, you know, once the network effect takes off, then the surrounding ecosystem gets stronger. And so, for example, uh, you know, now there are Bitcoin-only hardware wallets. And so, in the, in the in the in the beginning, we had these hardware wallets that you could hold a bunch of digital assets. Uh, but then, as the Bitcoin community kind of diverged a little bit from the from the other crypto assets, uh, we see things you know like Bitcoin-only hardware wallets uh, that dedicate to, to to Bitcoin. Same thing with security companies uh, like Casa. Uh, you know, they kind of focus on multi-signature solutions and you start to get more and more, uh, you know, development in the surrounding ecosystem or apps that run on on Bitcoin or you see rewards cards that pay you in Bitcoin, uh, whereas you see a lot less of that in some of the smaller coins uh, because they haven't hit the critical mass to have that kind of better and better ecosystem. And then, of course, once, a, a, you know, one of the protocols reaches that high level and gets that better ecosystem, that gives, you know, more access points for people to invest in it, more money pours into it, and then that, that can make the surrounding ecosystem even better. Thank you. That, that's helpful and interesting. Uh, let's talk about volatility, right? Because, you know, Bitcoin went up 100% in three weeks and down about 28% in two days. Um, JP Morgan has issued a, a note over the last couple of weeks. We're really thrilled that JP Morgan is writing about Bitcoin, although I have to say I don't agree with much of what they write. So, for example, they wrote last week that a Bitcoin ETF would be bad for Bitcoin, which I violently disagree with. But they also wrote the week before, interestingly, that if you look at Bitcoin on sort of a volatility-adjusted basis, that essentially it's fairly valued, um, particularly in comparison to gold. You know, if you look at market cap in comparison to volatility. Do you have any, have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I view, you know, there's often that narrative of Bitcoin as a store of value, and of course you have the pushback to say, how can you call it a store of value if it, if you can literally wake up and you know the next day your Bitcoin's down by like a third? Uh, and that's because I'd classify it as an emergent store of value, and so it's basically a whole new asset class, uh, and it's currently in the price discovery phase, whereas the whole world kind of discovers what is this thing worth. And so you know the first decade of its existence, it was mostly retail investors. Uh, the past couple of years, especially 2020, we've seen uh, more institutional interest. And so if you look at that kind of classic S-curve of adoption, where you have that initial early adopters, and then you have kind of that mass adoption phase, and then kind of the maturity phase, uh, where something like gold is, of course, you know, it's a fully mature store of value. It's been around for thousands of years. And so we, we have a lot less volatility. Whereas Bitcoin, is still in that earlier phase of its of its adoption cycle, and so it has more risk, it has more volatility. Uh, but then, you know, people that are investing in it are basically expecting that it over time it'll become more widely di distributed, more broadly owned, and that its volatility will go down over time. And you know, there are a couple of different ways to measure volatility. 
So one of the simplest ways is just to look at, say, drawdowns, uh, you know, from all-time highs. And so the problem there is that you know because Bitcoin has these like illiquidity events, uh, you know, for example, if you look back in late 2017, we hit that really high level, but there's actually very little volume at that at that super high level. Whereas I think one of the best ways to measure volatility is to look at the the market capitalization uh, compared to the realized capitalization, which is basically you know the realized cap is basically a, it's kind of like a cost basis for Bitcoin. It's basically looking at the price, uh, you know the the, the weighted average uh, of looking at the the blockchain and seeing when when coins last moved and looking at the price at which they moved, and you can kind of come with a cost basis of, of when the system last moved, and then compare that to market cap. And of course, that's a, you know the, those are both rolling numbers. And if you look at it like that, uh, Bitcoin's volatility has reduced uh, in every four-year cycle. And that's you know basically that the, the actual cost basis where people bought their coins has generally become a little bit more stable each time, although it still is significantly uh, volatile because you know if you were to listen to the Bitcoin bulls, it's still fairly early on in its adoption cycle, and that it could become several, several times larger uh, before the volatility would, would go down and look you know perhaps resemble more like gold or, or silver. So speaking of the Bitcoin bulls, uh, Cameron and Tyler Wickelvoss, you know, wrote a piece earlier in the year, um, $500,000 target for Bitcoin, basically that it, it will equal the, the price target, I mean, the market cap of gold. What's your reaction to that? Uh, I think it's possible. I mean, I, I try to avoid specific price targets, especially within a given cycle, because I can have a high conviction that it's going to do well in the cycle. Uh, but then the question is how high. And so, for example, my base case early this summer is if if you look at the you know the price performance of Bitcoin each four year halving cycle, uh, each one uh, you know was obviously explosive, uh, but each one was you know uh, a smaller gain percentage wise than the cycle before it. Uh, and, and that makes sense because you know as you go from a micro cap to a small cap to a med- medium cap to a large cap, you should expect smaller percent gains. Now this cycle so far was surprising me to the upside because it's actually uh, on track to do better so far uh, compared to where we are from the having uh, compared to the previous four-year cycle. And maybe that's because we've had institutional interest, so we've had like a you know an extra kick uh, of big money coming in. There could be a variety. Of, maybe it's the macro environment. That, you know there could be a, a variety of reasons. Uh, and so. You know, my price target was you know significantly north of where it was, uh, but without trying to give a, a firm conviction, I said you know I would I, I would expect at least a trillion dollar market capitalization in this cycle. Uh, you know, I think you know, four to equal gold. I think that's a real possibility. I would actually break it down a little bit though into the different types of gold. And so, for example, you know, if you look at you know gold as something like a ten trillion dollar market capitalization, uh, but that of course consists of central banks owning it. That consists of a very large kind of you know uh, stockpile of jewelry around around the world, and also consists of you know outright investment demand in the form of ETFs or gold bars and things like that. And so I, I think the first step is to overtake or or match gold's uh, investment demand, right? Which which would be a subset that might be I don't I don't have the numbers omni, but it might be something like two trillion. Uh, maybe three trillion, and then from there we'll see where it goes. Uh, to, you know, to overtake, say, the jewelry amount, the central bank amount. Uh, that's a whole, you know, separate kind of use case. Uh, and but over time, I do think that that Bitcoin could potentially rival gold uh, if if it continues to be seen and have this kind of four-year halving cycle keep playing out uh, in the way that it has. Do you think Bitcoin could sort of demonetize other asset classes? So, for example, right, art is a store of value, right? Most art. Doesn't sit on people's walls. It sits in you know these big storage facilities, right, where people aren't owning it to enjoy it, right. There are throughout Manhattan right now, lots of foreign people own 
apartments here that they never visit, right? So they're, they're, they're treating New York real estate as just a store of value. You know, could you see a scenario where Bitcoin, you know, takes a big chunk of those other alternative asset classes? In other words, are we thinking too narrowly by focusing on gold? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's the most bullish case overall. And so I think it's helpful to actually think of it in terms of layers. And so you can basically say, what if, what if Bitcoin uh, overtakes the investment case for gold? And then it's what if Bitcoin overtakes all of gold? And then it's what if Bitcoin becomes such a broad store of value that it begins demonetizing those other stores of value? And so in that case, you can get in the tens of trillions of dollars in market capitalization because you're, you're taking away from all those different areas. And so I think that's a possibility. I think, you know, my, my focus is to kind of emphasize one four-year halving cycle at a time. And like, let's, let's see where we get in this cycle. And then from there, we'll have more information to judge, you know, what the next four-year cycle might look like. Uh, whereas I try not to speculate too far in advance, uh, but I, I do think that those situations are possible. And I agree with you. I mean, you know, there, there's so much kind of just, basically the world has a store of value problem. And that's actually, I think, one of the reasons why the core Bitcoin software took off and not some of these other derivatives of it uh, that tried to emphasize uh, higher throughput. And because you know the world has all sorts of payment technologies, it's pretty easy for most people to pay. Now, there are some edge cases and, and, and you know, for example, a lot of people sending small international money. It's actually a lot of, it's actually a lot of people that have that issue. Uh, and so for them, you know, they have that particular issue. But if you look at where big pools of capital are, uh, they primarily have a store of value problem because, you know, banks are paying a level of interest that doesn't keep up with inflation. Same thing for most sovereign bonds around the world. And so, you know, uh, all these investors have have this store of value problem. And so, yeah, we see things being bid up like fine wine, fine art, beachfront property, uh, all these different things. And a lot of them, you know, they don't, obviously they don't generate cash flow. And like, for example, you, you point out that, you know, apartments in, in New York are empty. I, I like to go to beaches where they just have these $30 million homes and no one's there. Uh, be, and, you know, they only go there maybe, you know, two weeks out of the year. And then the whole beach is yours because they're primarily just using that, that beachfront property as stores of value. Uh, and so I do think that over time, uh, Bitcoin can chip away at some of those. I don't know if it will displace them, but it certainly gives an alternative that is more fungible, more liquid. I would add Malibu to your list of beaches with beautiful houses to go visit where there aren't many people there. Um, so what could go wrong, Lynn? Like, what do you worry about? Like, if we're all wrong, right, what, what, you know, of course, the thing I worry about the most is, you know, Dick Cheney's unknown unknowns. Um, I'm less worried about the things in front of me, but of, of the things that we can, you know, we have the imagination to contemplate, you know, what are, what are the one or two or three things that, you know, you worry about and we should be worrying about? Yeah, so one would be obviously like a big bug in the software. Uh, and so, you know, some of these uh, protocols had bugs in their early days. And so, for example, Bitcoin had an inflation bug back in 2010. Uh, it was fixed within hours. Uh, Ethereum had a big bug in its early period. Uh, and so, but now, you know, I mean, Bitcoin's an open source software. There's tons of people scrutinizing every line of code. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's it's in the phase where it's a finished product now. It, it, you know, it undergoes security updates, privacy updates, uh, but it's not radically changing. Uh, and so, but that is, you know, kind of a tail risk if something were to go wrong technically. Um, besides that, I think we still have a big regulation hold, hurdle to get through. Uh, and so, for example, you know, I, a lot of people are concerned that if Bitcoin gets too big, it faces more regulatory scrutiny uh, and risks being banned. Whereas I've argued somewhat the opposite, that the bigger it gets, 
you know, the harder it is to outright ban. Uh, and then instead, that you know, the key risk is is regulation. They want to, you know, they want to know who's buying it. They they want to be able to track it for tax purposes. They want to, you know, uh, do all sorts of things like that. They want to have know your customer regulations at the gateways. Uh, but the you know the probability of it being banned by major capital markets. Uh, goes down pretty significantly once it becomes a multi-hundred billion dollar or a trillion dollar market capitalization, and once you have a lot of institutional investors in in it, and so uh, so I think that that's being de-risked. Uh, but you still have to take into account any sort of headlines that could come out, things like that. I think the last point is that you know so far Bitcoin's done very well in every halving cycle. I think you'd, it'd be pretty bearish if you were to see a halving cycle. Where Bitcoin does not reach new all-time highs, uh, because the, you know that kind of kills kind of the, the long-term structural momentum and its adoption cycle. Uh, so I think that's a, a key thing to monitor for the health of of you know how Bitcoin is is adopting. You can also monitor things like how many new addresses are being used. Uh, you can also look at things like you know development of the Lightning Network uh, that potentially make you know Bitcoin better as a medium of exchange, uh, because right now the base layer is optimized as a store of value. Uh, and so you can monitor the ecosystem around it. Some of these other apps, some of these hardware solutions, some of these, you know, increased throughput solutions, and you can see basically what is the health of that system? Is it deteriorating, or does it continue to do pretty well? I I, 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 I absolutely agree with you, particularly on the regulation point. And, and I think what Bill Miller was talking about, because I've actually had the privilege to speak to him, is is yes, the the, the network is getting stronger, but also right. It gets de-risked from a regulatory standpoint, the bigger it gets, right? So that we yeah. want more people, you know, particularly institutions to own it. Uh, you know, the government then again has to build a regulatory infrastructure around, but they, it, it just becomes something that exists. Um, so just a quick one or two, I'm going to throw it over to John. Yesterday, um, Anchorage Digital Bank was made the first sort of nationally chartered digital bank in the country, right? We have two state chartered banks in uh, digital banks in uh, in Wyoming. What do you think the significance of that is, um, if any? Well, I think it's good. I mean, over the past several months, we've seen increasing news like this. And so, for example, you know, we've seen that they, you know, they they uh, approve the fact that banks can can custody digital assets a while ago. That was kind of a, a broader statement. We've seen also uh, statements about, uh, you know, uh, banks being able to use uh, you know, stable coins or or other blockchain technology, and of course now we have this news. And so I think this is just a further compounding of the adoption curve of the network effect of regulatory de-risking. Uh, and so I think that that all continues to support uh, you know the story of Bitcoin. We've also seen, for example, uh, Singapore's largest bank, uh, uh, DBS. Uh, is getting into uh, custody uh, and trading for credit and institutional investors. Uh, and so, you know, kind of around the world, you see these other entities popping up. They want to be like Fidelity. Uh, you know, they want to be like, you know, Gemini. They want to have these, these, these uh, you know, exposure to that industry. And so you're, you're kind of seeing it in all these different, uh, you know, markets around the world. And I think it's a good thing. Uh, Gary Gensler, buy, sell, hold. Um, I think, you know, it's... Overall, it's 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 fine for Bitcoin. I'd be more worried if I was, you know, in some of those altcoin spaces, uh, you know, some of the scammier things. Uh, but I don't I don't see it as a key issue for for Bitcoin. Right. You know, there are some people that believe it will probably accelerate an ETF. You know, Vanek filed one in December. Um, I think we'll see. But uh, you know, he seems to he was teaching a class on blockchain at MIT, so. Uh, I guess if we're tea leaf reading, it's uh, it's pretty that's pretty good. Yeah, I think so. John, I'm going to throw it over to you. 
All right. Well, I'm going to sneak in a few questions here before we let you go, Lynn. For everybody watching this, I would encourage you to go to Lynn's website, which is lynnalden.com. It's a tremendous resource for very thoughtful analysis on the Bitcoin space. You know, a lot of times you speak to people who are in the space who are uh, somewhat one-sided. They're, they're big-time believers in Bitcoin, and they don't take a balanced look necessarily at the issues. And I think, Lynn, you do a, a tremendous job both on this uh, SALT talk here today and in general about uh, having a sober analysis of all the different factors that go into Bitcoin and have a few questions based on reading that I've done on your website. So the first one is you've done sort of a thoughtful analysis of different ways to buy Bitcoin and the pluses and minuses to using each one, whether that be buying direct and owning on your own flash drive or buying through an exchange or buying using a fund structure. Could you talk through the, the pluses and minuses in your mind as the people potentially that are watching this salt talk or evaluating, okay, I'm bought into the story, but how do I gain exposure in a way that's comfortable and safe for me? Yeah, it really depends. on. Remember, we have a fund. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Please speak freely. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, you know, it, it depends on uh, you know the the use case of the of the institution or the person, as well as how much money they want to put in. And so, you know, for a lot of people, the first step is to go on an exchange uh, or to go. Now, there's even uh, you know places that do dollar cost averaging, for example, like Swan Bitcoin. Uh, but you know, whatever the case may be, there's these retail portals that people can go through, and they can kind of just get exposure to it directly. It's one of the more cost effective ways to do it. Uh, and then from there, uh, if they want to increase their security, they can self-custody the coins. So you can transfer coins uh, from most of those platforms to your self-custody. Uh, but of course, there's a learning curve there. So if you don't know what you're doing, you actually have lower security because you have a higher chance of, of doing something wrong and losing your coins. Uh, but if you learn how to do it, uh, that is actually you know one of the safest ways to hold it is to have self-custody or multi-signature uh, you know, self-custody. Uh, and then from there, we have a lot of vehicles for, around for it. So of course, we have the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust that people can use if they want to proxy. Uh, the thing I point out there is that uh, you know, for retail investors uh, or, or institutions who just want to hold it on the, on the market, uh, it does often trade at a premium to NAV. And so you know, you're, you're buying into a Bitcoin fund, uh, but you're not getting you know, your dollar per dollar worth of Bitcoin usually. And so I would just monitor that premium to make sure that you're not buying in at a level uh, that, is, that is too high. And so you know, some degree of premium is fine because there's, you know, there's no Bitcoin ETF yet, uh, and people can also hold that and things like their retirement account. Uh, you know, so that those tax advantages can 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 chip away at at you know the premium, uh, but it's something to watch. And I think you know your your fund uh, does actually you know that that gives another access point. It's it's I saw that the fees uh, you know quite reasonable. It's pretty low, uh, and so that actually you know I think for funds because they they can have regulatory issues around self custody. I've talked to some firms that they say that, you know the, the regulators do not let them self custody. So of course they're reliant on these custody solutions like Fidelity, like your fund things like that, that they can, you know, uh, put uh, pretty big money into and have a cost effective way to hold it without worrying about a lot of the technical details. So going more into depth on GBTC, there is that premium that you mentioned, and, and really they're a victim of their own success. I think last week they bought two and a half times the number of Bitcoin that were even mined. And Grayscale's obviously done a ton to help institutionalize and broaden adoption of Bitcoin. How concerned are you about that premium long-term if we do see a Bitcoin ETF, the potential that that premium could evaporate or even the fund could trade at a discount? 
Uh, I would I would expect to see the premium uh, go down, uh, you know, to near zero uh, if you were to get that ETF, uh, just because the the you know the reason for that would be would be much less. So now you have a, a pretty good arbitrage opportunity with GBTC because people can you know accredited investors can buy into it uh, at NAV, and then you know later you have lockup period, and then of course the whole dynamics of it normally trading at a premium. Uh, but if you were to have a Bitcoin ETF. Uh, you know that that uh, limits that arbitrage opportunity, and so I do think that over time, uh, you know, investors will have more access points, uh, and that you know those kind of funds will probably be you know less critical. Um, you know, it also presents somewhat of a central centralization risk, and so for example, that's a that's a lot of bitcoins held in one custody area, and so you know that's that's something to kind of monitor as well. Is that you have to make sure that your custody solution is rock solid if you're using, uh, you know, one big, uh, you know, custody solution for your your Bitcoin holding. So switching gears a little bit, uh, we've had Michael Saylor on Salt Talks, and he talks about how he believes that uh, Bitcoin is really a thermodynamic wave uh, that's revolutionizing the monetary system, and that inherently the technology has some level of intrinsic value. But the common criticism that you hear from you know, older people, baby boomers. Brett is an enlightened uh, boomer, but you hear a lot of cr- criticism from older people who say, well, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. It's just a piece of code that was invented out of thin air. How do you respond to people who say that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value? How do you help them conceptualize you know, what you believe to be some level of intrinsic value? Yeah, so if you look at, you know, we, we talked before about, uh, you know, that some of these stores of value have been monetized. And so, you know, things like beachfront property or fine art, fine wine, they do have utility uh, in, in, you know, in the course of what they do, but they're also valued as, for their scarcity and their, and their kind of monetary premium. And Bitcoin is, is so far the same thing. And so it has real world utility in the sense that, you know, you can perform permissionless payments internationally. Uh, and that there's no kind of third party that can just stop you from doing it. And so that has a massive amount of utility. It's also extremely mobile. And so, for example, you know, imagine, for example, trying to transport gold, uh, you know, if you were to want to move, you know, from, say, you know, one, one country to another country, imagine trying to get gold across, you know, uh, uh, you know borders or, or, or trying to, you know, navigate through the banking system, especially if there's some sort of crisis or some sort of issue, because, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, uh, tons of different countries in the world, they all are going through different things at different times. Uh, whereas Bitcoin, you can literally transport your funds across borders just by remembering a 12-word seed phrase. Uh, and so that that level of self-custody or self-sovereignty uh, gives that a higher mobility of funds uh, than most other stores of value or, or transfers of value. We're also starting to see some, some, some payment networks that are beginning to use it. And so, for example, you have Bitcoin, which is the base layer. Then you have Lightning, which is a secondary layer that it can, that can increase transaction throughput and decrease fees per, per transaction. And we're starting to see apps that kind of make use of that for fiat to fee, fiat payments. And so it'll, it'll basically take you know, your money, convert it to Bitcoin, a uh, you know, split second later, converts it from Bitcoin to another uh, you know, currency in another part of the world. And he basically done an international payment for almost free using that inherent liquidity uh, on, on the Lightning Network. And so I think over time, you'll see more and more utility like that. And when you combine that with the fact that there's a really wide network effect, uh, there's a very high level of security backing up uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin's network compared to other altcoins, uh, that overall gives it a similar uh, kind of store of value property. We have that, that utility combined with a monetary premium. 
So we had somebody recently ask us about Bitcoin Cash and, and how these forks work. And you had a great write-up again on LynnAlden.com, your website about this issue. Why do these forks happen? It, specifically, you can talk about Bitcoin Cash and, and why uh, part of the Bitcoin movement decided to fork it. And, and is are those forks in any way a threat to the future of Bitcoin? Uh, so I would say no. And, and we've seen that kind of play out in terms of the market. And so they, they've decreased substantially in terms of, of hash rate and price relative to Bitcoin. So that they're a small fraction of what Bitcoin is. Uh, but basically going back to the fork wars and why they happened, uh, you know, if you look at Satoshi Nakamoto's original white paper, uh, you know, people often try to divine what, what was his intention based on the white paper, based on his foreign post, what, what did he want to accomplish? And so he, he called it e-cash. He, want, he envisioned basically being able to use Bitcoins as this kind of permissionless cash. Uh, and he also talked about how to keep the node really small so that, you know, that, that, you know, you can compress the, the size of the blockchain so that, you know, the blockchain doesn't get very big and you need high storage capacity to hold it. And so that you basically keep it so that a normal computer can run it. Uh, and so over time, we've seen some of a trade-off occur. And so if you want to keep the, the blockchain uh, you know, uh, uh, easy for, say, a typical computer to be able to run, uh, you know, ha have that full node, uh, you have to have transaction throughput in terms of the number of transactions per second to be pretty low. Uh, so that doesn't limit how much value can be transacted because there's no limit to the size of those transactions, uh, but there's a limit uh, to the number of transactions that can occur. On the other hand, if you want to increase the number of transactions on that base layer, you need to increase the block size. You need to make basically nodes much harder to run, which means that the average user uh, can't necessarily run a full node and verify, you know, and audit the monetary supply of the network. Which is, you know, one of the key things that that Bitcoin can do is that you don't you don't trust you verify. You can monitor the entire money supply uh, with your laptop, uh, and so. We've had that trade-off, you know, that that big kind of argument among developers happen in 2017, and so it split. And and Bitcoin Cash, uh, they increase the block size. It's harder to run a full node, uh, but you can do more transactions per second on the base layer. And Core Bitcoin, their solution instead is to say, okay, the the base layer is like a settlement layer, so you can you can settle any amount of value, uh, even though you're limited to the number of transactions. Uh, however, we can build secondary layers like the Lightning Network. They can increase the you know the, the amount of transactions per unit time and settle them uh, in a batch on the network. And so, actually, for example, if you look at something like you know credit card companies and all these uh, you know or PayPal things that kind of do high volume payments, uh, you know they're settling in in, in batches uh, later. And so, Bitcoin would basically operate the same way, where these other layers can handle high high transaction throughput, whereas the base layer can handle large large uh, you know uh, key settlements. Uh, and so that's kind of been the design trade-off. And so far, the market has, you know, vastly appreciated uh, that that high hash rate, uh, the widely distributed node network, uh, that that kind of settlement aspect of Bitcoin. Well, Lynn, it's been a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks again. I would encourage everybody who's watching this talk, if you want to learn more and get more of Lynn's thoughtful analysis on the space, LynnAlden.com. She has a great newsletter and great investment research. But it's a pleasure to have you on. Brett, do you have any final words for Lynn before we let her go? Yeah, I just wanted Lynn to know that we run a full node at Skybridge. So, you know, we are doing all we can. We want to, you know, be part of the community. We figure it's good karma. Nice. Yeah, you're helping to verify the network. All right. Well, thank you again, Lynn. And thank you for everybody who joined us on today's Salt Talk. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or you want to access our Salt Talks with Michael Saylor, other people in the crypto space or across finance, tech and public policy, our three main verticals, you can uh, see our entire archive at salt.org backslash talks. 
backslash archive. And you can sign up for all of our upcoming talks at salt.org backslash talks. Please follow us on YouTube as well. We broadcast a lot of these talks on YouTube. We have a fast growing audience there and are continuing to build out our digital assets vertical there. So please follow us on YouTube and please follow us on all social media outlets. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. But on behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We'll see you back here again tomorrow on SALT Talks. 